0: Howdy, folks. Welcome back to Broly Sportsman Show. Today, I have a great episode for you guys. I have Joe Schulte on talking about pheasant hunting, and this is the first installment in that fall opportunities episode I was talking to you guys about. So, you know, last week I talked about fall opportunities. What is there to do in the fall, and why is it my favorite season? Because, give me straight, you got football, and you got hunting and fishing, and that's all you need, and uh, it's just a great time. It's it really the truth of it. You can go deer hunting, pheasant hunting, uh, waterfall hunting. So, you know, goose and duck. That episode, because I'm planning on doing an episode for each different segment, except football, of course. Um, but you know, goose and duck hunting I might mend together in one. But uh I guess it kind of depends. You know, that really it does. And then we also have fishing, like really good fishing. That water temperature is cooling off and uh those fish are starting to get on their feed bags for fall, so they're trying to get fat for the winter. It's it's a beautiful time of year. I'll tell you what. But, uh, yeah, we brought Joe Schultheon as our resident pheasant hunting expert. Uh, really fun episode with him. I had a ton of fun recording this one, so I hope you guys enjoy it. But before I get any further, I need to plug my Instagram. It is at Welly Sportsman Show. So pretty much the name of my podcast without the apostrophe in your set. Uh, that is W-E-L-L-E-S and then Sportsman Show. So, yeah, you know, I... I I don't think I have to spell that one out, but <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, that is my Instagram. You guys get updates on when new episodes come out, what I'm doing. Uh, like even just just today in my uh, AP Gov class, I was posting a picture of my bass I caught this week, and I actually caught two decent ones. I posted the picture of the largemouth. Uh, the smallmouth I caught will be coming on later. But that brings me right into my next point. My week in review. So my week in review is a small one, you know. Like you guys know, I've been in school for the last, I don't know, month or so, maybe a little bit more. So I'm not able to go out on multiple trips a week, really. Uh, you know, Saturday mornings, I'm usually working after football games. I'm all sore. I'm all beat up. You know, just just not that not that fun, <laughs> you know. But uh, we're getting content for you guys. This Sunday, I went fishing with a couple buddies. We had a great time. We tried some new water in the fall. And uh, we found out that the water temperature is a little too high yet. The fish are, you know, they're pretty easy to catch right now. uh, But they're not quite feeding like crazy for that fall bite. Uh, So give it a couple more weeks of these cool nights. And I think pretty soon we'll be seeing that. And uh, as the water temperature cools down you know, we'll see those, those big bites coming in. I think right now the water temperature is what, just under 65 and perf- I'd like to see it get down to like 60 or so. And I think that'll trigger those fish to, you know, get eaten, you know, get, get that gut. Cause a lot of the fish I caught, like the bigger fish I caught, like they had a flabby stomach and it wasn't just a lake we were on. It was like, we went to two different lakes and they both had flat, flabby stomachs. So, um, I think it's a water temperature thing, and they're not quite there yet, especially with the mixed weather we've got. So give it a little bit of time, and pretty soon we'll get to that best time of year that I love. You know, fall fishing is a great time. So that brings me up to my uh, next point is go fishing. Try it out. You know, I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, they're wrapping up the season for the year. Uh, You know, multiple people tell me that. And I'm like, what do you mean? The best time is just getting started. So if you are, I don't know, I won't say new to fishing, but, like, inexperienced in fall fishing and haven't really tried it out brave the cold one morning you know when it's super cold and you know you can, <laughs> you're you probably thinking of your warm bed because it's that kind of cold um but give it a shot because i think you guys are gonna like it. it it has uh some of my best days fishing have come off of this uh fall area so we'll get into the fishing aspect of this more but for now we are focused on pheasants so without further ado Here's Joe Schulte. Thank you for listening. I hope you guys enjoy. Before I get any further, I need to give a kind shout-out to Relevant. Uh, They've gone above and beyond, and they make great stuff. Let me tell you what. So, I went fishing Sunday, as uh, I just talked about not too long ago relevant was a huge make or break for that whole fishing outing we got out in the lake super early you know right around that sunrise mark could have been there earlier but that's not relevant <laughs> see what i did there that's a good one <laughs> but uh we got there super early i put my sunglasses on right away in the day the sunrise came up you know the sun right in my eyes so i had that really heavy tint um because there's a lot of ev rays out and then the overcast clouds came in and whoosh, it was all dark And then my sunglasses, because of the chameleon technology in the lenses, lightened back up. And it was a huge advantage because I was able to keep my sunglasses on all day. Whereas my buddies, who don't have elephants yet, they had to take theirs off. So uh, we were doing a little bit of sight fishing up shallow, and I was able to get the edge over my buddies. And I was actually spotting fish that were, like, straight in front of them that they would have easily been able to see. I'm like, hey, there's one right there. They're like, where? And I said, right there, I'm like, oh, you don't got the relevance on, do you? And they're like, nope. Uh, That's the media relevance there. You get the advantages of polarization without the tint always. And that is huge. You know, I talked about it, um, what was that, maybe a month or so ago, two months, about the advantages when I was wading in the creek, or that was in the river. I was wading in the river. And same kind of deal. You know, I got the advantages of polarization without having that super dark lens over my eyes. It was a huge like deal. Like it's it's it made a big deal. It was a it was a huge part of my success. And uh, yeah, just absolutely love my my relevance. Uh, go check them out at relevant.life. They are offering the best science-based solutions for the outdoor enthusiast. They're the next big thing, let me tell you fellas, go check them out. Relevant.life. Howdy folks, welcome back to Ro Sportsman Show. Today I am joined by Joe Schulte. You want to say hi?
1: Hello everybody.
0: Well, uh Joe, I I see you as a <laughs> like a resident pheasant expert in a sense um so i brought you on today to talk about uh pheasant hunting i recently did a fall opportunities episode i kind of went through uh some fall opportunities that you have so uh like for example of course pheasant hunting deer hunting uh fishing and then obviously waterfall hunting so uh, my plan here is to have one person or like expert per se uh from every kind of area of that list i made uh come on and talk a little bit about that particular passion and uh we're going to kick it off with pheasant hunting. And uh i have done pheasant hunting before, but uh would you explain pheasant hunting to me like i had never done it before and then especially to the audience uh that have never
1: they never hunted before um just kind of explain pheasant hunting for them. Sure. So, before the 1860s, nobody had done it cuz pheasants really weren't around. They're technically an invasive species of sort or an introduced species at the very least. Uh, Chinese ring, ring neck pheasant is the variation that we chase mostly. And uh, they were introduced just for sport, um, for fun. And uh, there was like 16 pairs released and they basically propagated across the U.S. And now they their range is everything from Oregon all the way down through Kansas, Texas, uh, Oklahoma. They pretty much go east to Wisconsin and then for whatever reason they just have not there used to be a wild population um, back east but now it's all planted birds back there so you you pursue these birds that are um, mostly on the ground but they are incredible flyers when they need to Um, they'll run before they'll fly and uh, you can hunt them without dogs but a lot of people use dogs uh, just because it 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 really magnifies the experience so um, and they're flushing birds, so they'll hold usually at some point they'll hold and cover, and then they just kind of explode out of that and do their best to get out of the way cackle. Um, it's super exciting part of it, right? Cause, uh, it's usually uh, the, in the moment it's a huge surprise and that's what makes it challenging too, is you don't usually know when that's coming.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um. And I like I like how you said that they're they're pretty good flyers because that's true. Like uh, we've hunted them in like timber, even in the woods, and you try to see them fly between those branches. They're they're pretty incredible on the way they fly, and then they they have that glide too. I
1: just ooh, I love it. Makes yeah. me excited for next weekend. So typically shotguns, uh, right as well. I probably should say that and, and uh, seal shot, something similar to duck load. Uh, you can hunt them with just about anything, but uh, shotguns is preferred as well so
0: is it legal here in minnesota to hunt them without shotguns
1: well i think you could try taking them with a bow legally but i know like uh, probably be discouraged to hunt them with a 22 when my dad was younger they used to shoot them with 22s because they didn't want to waste any meat so they would shoot them in the head with a 22 um different time when there was a lot more birds uh i don't know mm-hmm. that that's even illegal, but I guess I shouldn't go on record as saying that. I, I would say, uh, I don't know anybody that does it currently. So, I uh, I remember my great
0: uncle's talking to me about how they'd go to church on Sundays, and both on the way to church and on the way home from church, they'd road hunt pheasants and end up with you know dinner at the end of the end of the trip, and then end up with a bag of birds that's uh. I remember old stories like that and you can definitely see how the bird numbers have changed throughout the years and sounds like they're making a little comeback here but hopefully conservation efforts keep them coming up.
1: Yeah I mean that you mentioned road hunting just for somebody that's never done it Um, it's legal in Minnesota to hunt the ditches uh, that's 66 feet from the center of the road and so it is a viable way if you don't have a lot of access to land Um, as long as you do it legally you can drive around and you'll see them out Uh, usually they're getting out of uh, moisture in the morning there's dew in the grass and so they want to get on the road or they actually uh, they pick up gravel and they put it in their crop and that helps them process food so they have a reason to come to the road and if you see a rooster um which is a male with a white ring around its neck uh you can pursue that bird in the ditch and as long as you're not shooting off the roadway or across the roadway and you're shooting a bird within the ditch it's legal and it's been done many times um, so like for people that are just getting into it, or if you see somebody doing this, like what are they doing? Well, in Minnesota, it's legal.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, now let's jump into some of the essentials of pheasant hunting. And I know you kind of covered some, most of them. Uh, is there anything you really missed? Uh, so we had shotguns. You talked about dogs very briefly, which we'll, we'll cover over later. Uh, you want to talk about uh, clothing and, and what kind of clothing you really need and then what's really preferred as well?
1: Sure. So you need to wear orange Uh, in Minnesota, particularly you got to have your upper half covered. A a game vest is usually used, which has a synthetic pouch in the back. So once you bag a bird, you can put it um, in the back of your vest. Um, Usually front loads are really nice, which means you can tuck the bird in from the front and it works its way around to the back. But beyond that, I would encourage your listeners to not think they have to buy any and everything. Uh, Chaps are great. Uh, or brush pants. So brush pants are fairly common, but chaps are really popular uh, among pheasant hunters. And, um, you know, you can spend $150 on chaps, or you can, you can spend $30 on chaps and get really good ones too. So um, you don't have to break the bank on that. Uh, Boots, I wear muck boots now. I, I have like red wings or leather boots that I'll wear for afternoons if the grass is dry and i know i'm not going to be in a lot of water if i'm in high country but otherwise i almost always wear uninsulated muck boots and um what else do you need i mean needs a hat is nice but it can affect your shooting i usually wear sunglasses when Mm -hmm. i shoot um that'd probably be it i I wear sidewinder suspenders welly i'm a big fan of these uh they're truckers i love suspenders they're just the two clips (laughs) on the side they stay out of the way and uh when you're, if you got, if you're wearing a belt and your jeans are falling down, it doesn't work. I'm also a big fan of uh, four-way stretch denim, the Lee Extreme Motion jeans. I'm a, I'm a backer of that. I believe it's like wearing sweatpants in the field, but you don't, you don't uh, get as beat up. So,
0: um, yeah, you got the dur- durability of jeans there. Yep. And uh, oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, uh, I was just waiting for see if I was covering it enough.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, do you ever dabble with a uh, strap vest? So that's pretty much for listeners that don't know. It's like a kind of a backpack type vest. Do you ever use those?
1: Yep. I currently have a burden light. Um, I like it. Uh, it's the
0: 2.0. So in your time using the strap vest, have you noticed any big, uh, like advantages over like, you know, your traditional pheasant hunting vests? Like what are the big advantages to that strap vest that you like?
1: Probably the biggest thing is that people overdress when they go pheasant hunting. Uh, Invariably, they'll be peeling off layers. So my general rule is I'll hunt to a t-shirt to about 55 degrees, a long sleeve t-shirt to 40, and then a hooded sweatshirt down to 10 degrees. And if it's below 10, I'm usually not pushing my dogs too far Uh, at short bursts, but that's pretty cold hunting. So the reason is you're physically pushing yourself through cover. And at a pretty quick pace, and that cover resists your movement, right? So it's it's not it, worst case scenario cattails, but everything else too. It's all tough stuff to get through, and so the the strap vest allows you to be basically. Uh, it, it cools you off a lot. Wearing a full color or full covered vest is hot and. Um, the less stuff I've got on the better usually in the, in the field other than getting scrapped uh, scraped up, which is going to happen anyway. So.
0: Yeah, I gotcha. Gotcha. I have to look into one of those, but, uh, for the amount I go pheasant hunting, I'm not really sure if it would be a smart investment. You know, I go, I don't know, maybe half dozen to 10 times a year kind of thing, depending on how good we're doing. But, uh, I think it also depends on if my dog takes a, a step in the right direction here with pheasant hunting. She, and she's got a good nose and all that, but uh, just hasn't put two and two together. But she's a fairly young, inexperienced dog so far. So hopefully, keep it on the field and she'll kind of put it together. Yep. That leads me kind of perfect up in the next uh, to the next you know point I have, and that's talking about dogs. Uh, we could talk about breeds i know which breed you like uh and then we could talk about some of the advantages disadvantage of pointers and and flushers and talk about the uh differences there you want to you want to kick it off with your dogs
1: sure well i will say before i had german shorthairs i had yellow labs and i hunt with labs Uh, my dad runs labs yet and they can hunt well together they kind of learn how to work off of each other uh my the labs typically know when the shorthairs go on point and that they kind of figure out they'll go in and bust the bird's which isn't bad as long as the labs are back tight and they're not bumping birds way up front because short hairs, once they find a bird, they'll hold it there and give you time to get to it. And uh, labs usually don't. You gotta wear running shoes a lot of times when you're hunting with them, with those labs. Um, so German short hair pointers, they are pointing breed. There's a, a whole bunch of different pointing breeds. Uh, you can get wire hair pointers. You can get setters that point. Uh, there are labs, pointing labs out there. Um, I've hunted with pointing labs, super fun. They'll just lock up when they're really on a bird, they'll, they'll lock up and hold. Um, why do I like GSPs? They, uh, for everything they've got with, um, character and drive and prey drive in the field, they've also got an amazing personality, uh, in person. They're not over needy when it comes to attention. Um, they're really mellow when it comes to -to day-to-day life, um super intelligent i just a big fan of the breed as a family dog because eight months out of the year i'm not hunting, hunting pheasants so i've got companion pets that uh i feed and take care of and they're a big responsibility so i want a dog that i can take fishing and that i can take to the cabin for the weekend and not have to worry about it and and they definitely do that and i would encourage anybody to consider you know like a dog should be total package if you're going to get a working breed Um, yeah, they should hunt, but they should also be best friend and they should be able to be in social situations and, and all that.
0: Gotcha. You put that, uh, you put that pretty good. And I'm not going to lie there. Um, we actually, I grew up with a a black lab and she would quite often actually, uh, point as well. So that's pretty cool. Uh, growing up with her and she was a really good, uh, pheasant dog, just, overall, you know, really fun dog to grow up with. And as I got older and I was fascinating with my dad, I would, uh, you know, I would watch her work and then I see, you know, I see the way she worked and I look at the way that my current dog works. It's a, it's definitely a, a different game that they're playing. Cause my dog now is a flusher through and through. There's no chance. She's, she's uh, pointing a bird out ever. Like, uh, definitely. Yeah. Like, like you said, they have the, the pointing laps, definitely lots of fun.
1: And you didn't get a chance to uh, have your current dog hunt with that old dog, did you? I did not. Yeah. I would say that dogs will train each other. um, And that's something, you know, we talk about dogs and it's a big step for people pheasant hunting, but it's also a game changer. Like if you're going to go hunt pheasants without a dog, you got to be willing to uh, put in the miles and it's a different experience. It's just entirely different. For me, pheasant hunting is about dogs. And... Mm -hmm it's, it's about watching those dogs work and do what they were born to do. And kind of one of the products of that is, is to be able to flush birds and, and bring something home. But it's, that's, what's unbelievable is they, how they know everything they know about hunting, the instinctual um, abilities that they have versus the little training that I've done. Um, Certainly I've worked them for steady and retrieve and, and all that, but it's just amazing what they know innately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh there's a brief time there between the two dogs that I've had that I went out pheasant hunting with my dad without you know a dog, and that was crazy hard. So uh, actually what we did is we went right after a fresh snow, and right after that fresh snow we were tracking the birds, so we were looking for tracks, and uh, we would kind of chase them around wherever they went. And I actually ended up shooting one without a dog, but that was insanely hard and i will never you know willingly do that to myself it was tough yeah so uh i suppose next we got uh shotguns we can talk about uh your favorite loads your favorite gauge to use favorite chokes and then obviously style so i definitely see you being like an over under kind of guy is that true
1: Yeah, within the last few years. I shot uh, semi-autos for a lot of years, but honestly, I've had... Eventually, they're going to give you problems in the field if you're hunting in moisture or um, cover or cold, and so you get gun jams even with cleaning, and it just... It was something that, in the end, if I was missing more than two times anyway, I probably shouldn't have gotten that bird. So when I got to the over-under stage... Um, I just knew I could count on two shots. That was honestly why I went to over under, uh, a pump would work for the same, you know, and I'm not a gun snob and I don't look down on people that shoot semi-autos or pumps or anything. Um, I just like that I can count on two shots. Uh, it's kind of cool to have two different chokes, even though that's, uh, sometimes, uh, if you're selecting the wrong choke anyway, then you're in your own head about it. But, um, You know, thinking about if people are getting into the sport, 12-gauge is kind of universally the way to go. Um, I shoot three-shot almost exclusively, twos and threes, uh, some really compelling studies done on effective kill of game birds, uh, particularly with pheasants and with ducks, and uh, two-shot, if you hit the bird with three pellets, the bird is going to die. Um the problem is you have more open pattern and less pellets. So you can miss a bird within a pattern. But, but when you shoot a bird with five or six shot, more often than not you get a cripple. And at the end of the day, I shouldn't say more often than not, but you will get more cripples. And at the end of the day, you will lose birds. And that to me is the biggest most disappointing part of, of hunting is to to bring a bird to the ground, but then not successfully retrieve it. Cause now you've just taken one out of nature that you are basically not getting to utilize you know dare i say wasting i mean it happens uh but last year shooting twos and threes like all season for me i think we lost two or three birds so normally if 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 you get them down on the ground with twos and threes they're they're not gonna um they're not gonna outrun you yeah yeah
0: that that makes sense i usually uh we usually start the season with fours. And as we shift towards that kind of late season mark, we end up shifting towards twos. Actually,
1: I don't think I've ever shot any threes, which is yeah, you kind can, of weird, you. weird, but I I just, they're the middle of the road. And like twos are the ones that research says is the most effective at killing. So, and there's threes out there. So it's just kind mm-hmm. of a, I don't know, maybe a lucky number, whatever middle ground. Can, <laughs> yeah. Three inch threes. Yeah. I just shoot steel. I, I went hunting with, uh, I do have some boss, which is the premium, um, uh, copper plated tungsten, but only cause I have a buddy that works for them and, uh, that stuff's super expensive. So and shells are getting crazy right now, they're like 18 bucks a box and, uh, hard to find still. Um, that's again, it's a discouragement for people to get into hunting or consider it cause it's such an investment, you know, but I would tell everybody to shoot steel. It'll kill birds. Um, and then you can hunt everywhere with it with non-toxic shot. Yeah, how do you like those bot shot shells? Well, they're they're brutally effective. Uh, I mean, they are like shooting lead, but you don't have to worry about the lead side of it. Um, They have improved Mm -hmm. a lot. When they first came out, they were just um, bismuth, and the bismuth would fracture. And so you'd get particles or parts of BBs in the bird, and it was a major problem. And they realized it. Um, And they went to uh, copper plated, which the copper plating keeps everything intact, but doesn't change the density as much. So they still have a super high kill rate, but, um, and they shoot like lead, but they're non-toxic. So you can take them on public ground, WPAs, et cetera. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: And uh, what is like, your your choke of choice now because so you said with the over under you can have two different chokes you have uh one as like an improved or one as a modified and then the other one is a fuller like what what's your ideal setup there and uh I shoot also the, do you uh, have a pref like a preferable brand
1: um for chokes not necessarily i've got a carlson's for a benelli the the current gun that i have but and it's for it's steel approved i mean your listeners should know you shouldn't really shoot steel through a normal full choke so like usually it steps down one tighter so um like if you're shooting an improved cylinder and a modified that would be like shooting a modified and a full i believe would be the correct um orientation and so it tightens your pattern anyway so i usually shoot uh, ic and modified in my two if it's a stock uh choke and i'm not again i'm not a big choke guy but i'm a big pattern your gun guy so if you've never gone out with a sheet of cardboard and shot at your shot at that cardboard from thirty yards away with whatever shells you're shooting, you need to do that. So you know where your gun shoots relative to where you're aiming. Um, I had a Frankie that I shot here for a few years and it it shot low. It would the, the pattern was lower than what my eye down the barrel was. And I was looking down the barrel, but when I shot at the the top of the pattern was where I was aiming all the I'm sorry, yeah. The top of the pattern was where I was aiming, which means it was like half a pattern low. Um, new gun, I just went on pattern that and it's, I like it because it's exactly where I'm looking. Like when I look down and center of the barrel on my target, the pattern is centered around that target. So super important for people. And just because you have no idea what your pattern looks like at 30 versus 40 yards. And if you've never done that you don't know if a bird is too far out Uh, people will shoot at birds that are 60 yards away that they have no business shooting at and people will shoot at a bird that gets up off their feet 10 yards away and their pattern is like the size of a coke can and so they wonder why they miss because they don't let the bird get out into a an effective pattern range and I see this all the time because I take new hunters hunting pretty regularly Last year, I was able to get three people on their first wild rooster. That's a that's a pretty cool experience to to see in the field, and and yet I see people that and you know, they make classic mistakes, which is they shoot too soon or they're taking cracks at birds that are getting up way too far out. Uh, and part of that's just not knowing like what is effective range, what is my what does my pattern look like out that far. So something I would encourage everybody, old, young, experienced, new. Uh, Make sure you pattern your guns. It gives you confidence of where you're aiming. It lets you know, like, if you can't fit a pheasant inside that pattern, then you know you have a good chance of killing it.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I've, uh, I've actually only patterned my gun once, I think, and that was when I was, I don't know, probably seven years old, eight years old, I was shooting turkey load for the first time and yeah. uh, since then i don't think i've shot anything really crazy and, and actually looked at the pattern on oh my gun i might have to do that soon
1: well you might be surprised it took me a year to figure out why i was always taking the legs out of birds and not killing them um with this fronky mm-hmm. i was like god i'm always you know i'd take the legs out and then they i'd bring them down they wouldn't run but it was just that simply that the gun aimed low and i had to adjust adjust my sights
0: how, how did you like that Frankie?
1: oh it's great it was a twenty six inch so it swung really fast and it was uh, it kicked because it was light so the, the gun was f- five and a half pounds or is um, which carrying that all day uh, is a lot nicer than carrying an eight pound uh, supernova or something like that through the field because it will wear on you it's amazing what a pound and a half does but um, I moved to uh, uh, an eight to eight, which is, um, it's an over under, uh, it's got a comfort stock, which is basically like a shock absorbing stock and, um, 28 inch barrel. So it just swings, swings a little better. And, um, I don't know. It wasn't a need, but it was like, uh, oh, if I have the opportunity, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to move over to it. So.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'm actually looking at getting a fronky at some point, uh, probably not anytime soon. Cause I have a Mossberg 500 and that thing is like I don't know, seven and a half pounds. I want to say something like that. And uh, I can attest to that where you get after a day of walking with that thing. It's uh it <laughs> feels like a big, big, uh, I don't know, something really heavy, like a big car lugging around your shoulder. It's,
1: it's, That's you know, it's heavy. Weird the strain that it puts on your bicep muscle, if depending on how you carry, um, for me yeah it strains your back too so i don't know um it's part of the part of the deal you're carrying gear as well but i hunted with a mossberg um in my younger years as well and i tell anybody it's not about the gun you know you can get in your head about that and it really isn't but mm-hmm. it's fun to to go through different guns and kind of It's kind of like cars you know like uh collector cars some some i keep and <laughs> i have a left-handed 1187 that i got for, as a Christmas gift. And I'll never part with that gun, even though I don't usually hunt with it. I bring it with as a spare and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that that's that a pretty good summary of the shotguns. I think we kind of hit everything there. Are we missing anything?
1: Um, 20 gauge will kill a pheasant uh, really effectively. So don't, people shouldn't be afraid of that. They don't need a 12 gauge to kill a pheasant. And, um, you know, a couple layers of clothes goes a long ways because you don't want to be flinching. Uh, game loads kick a lot harder than, than trap loads do. So if you haven't shot a lot of game loads, um, it that makes a difference too. And uh, what else would I say about guns? Um, you, get, you get a lot of moisture when you're hunting pheasants. You know, you certainly can. So you got to be conscious of don't sleeve that gun up and, and not take it out and dry it out. And wipe it down with oil every time you're done using it and or clean it, uh, if you've shot shells through it, um, certainly don't be afraid to do that. What else would I tell people about pheasant hunting and guns? Oh, well, I got a few things. Um, you know, if you haven't hunted pheasants before, the best thing you can do is to do, uh, to shoulder your gun, do 50 reps or a hundred reps of shouldering your gun before you go out hunting. Because most people that shoot competitively like sporting clays or, um, shoot trap their gun is mounted when they pull or call pull for the for the clay and that's a huge part of the equation these birds are going to bust out of cover dynamically without warning at the time when they think is the best for them to take advantage of you and they know that like they have an idea of when you're not looking or when you've particularly when you pause it makes them nervous so if you if you happen to stop take a break or you're talking to somebody else or maybe just waiting for the the hunting party to catch up uh, get back in line uh, they'll bust out of cover and your gun will be on your shoulder or over your shoulder or across your um across your chest or whatever and you've got to shoulder that gun locate that bird get a lead on it pull the trigger before it gets out of range most people never get past getting the gun up to their shoulder they they catch it in their armpit or on their coat and, uh, they shoot, you know, take a, take a chance shot or whatever. So those repetitions of, and just even like walking and then stopping and shouldering, um, you know that now you've been through it enough, but new hunters, man, it's a big learning curve to, to have enough speed to shoulder the gun, acquire the target with your eyes, put, get a lead on the target and then put it down. Uh, knowing where your safety is, uh, I keep my finger on my safety at all times. So I'm always checking that to be on safe. But then I'm always ready when the bird flushes. I almost always carry in a kind of ready position. So I'm gripping the um, pistol grip or the forearm or the um, near the trigger guard with my left hand because I'm left-handed, and the forearm with my right hand. If I'm not doing that, then I don't know. I can describe it, but I put my pinky finger through the, um, trigger guard and I carry the, um, carry it kind of like, uh, I don't know what that would be called, but, um, like an armrest style where the gun's upside down in my opposite hand, my right hand, and my pinky's hooked into that trigger guard. Anytime I see the birds getting, uh, or anytime I see the dogs getting birdie or letting me know, Hey, there's something here. Then I'll automatically move the gun to a ready position. doesn't mean I shoulder it. Um, but, um, I got, I got a story for you on that. I was, I took a, a veteran and, a um, uh, Afghan war veteran and he's a FBI agent. I took him pheasant hunting. He was home one winter. He lives down in the Carolinas. So he hadn't really done much and <clears throat> gave him the shotgun, explained it, you know, and military people, they're on a different level when it comes to gun operation. Right. Um, but he he looks over this gun. He's like, okay, I think I got it. Safety. Yep. Here's where the rounds go. How many rounds can I put in this thing? Three. Okay. So we're out walking and he's walking with the gun, like basically almost shouldered the whole time, just like SWAT team style. And I was like, David, you can can relax. We'll have a little bit of time. He's like, no, I just prefer this. You know, I'd rather be ready. So the gun it's nearly shouldered. Right. But it's just that high point. Like he's going to be shouldered in a half second. And sure enough, <laughs> Rooster gets up and he like unloads the thing within within a half a second. He just boom, 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 three shots, and the bird was seven seven yards away. Never touched it, <laughs> and, and it flew <laughs> off. And, and I'm, so then I'm trying to explain to him pattern and stuff because the guy's shot rifles and you know like long range stuff all his life. So um, yeah, there's there's a sweet spot there with being being ready to shoulder and being comfortable with that so i I did on on the shotgun front
0: yeah well perfect i'm glad you added all that stuff that was good so i you mentioned trap shooting in there and uh for the listeners that I might not know you are the trap shooting coach at the high school right
1: yeah one of them mr mo and i have uh there's about 70 kids give or take each year that have gone out and uh shoot um Five stand essentially is what it is about clay target, and it's been going strong for about eight years at Sartell. There's oh something like ten thousand shooters. I want to say there's ten thousand, and then I don't even know well about national statistics. I know there's about two hundred sixty teams in Minnesota, and uh, I think there was ten thousand kids at the state of Minnesota shoot. Like we're the second biggest, so a lot of interest. In competitive shooting and you know we talk about pheasant hunting it's i i make no qualms or i I don't hide this with the team that hey i want you to consider how this can be a a gateway into upland bird hunting because we're not seeing an increase in numbers in in upland bird hunting because it's usually passed on familially like my dad hunted so therefore i do and there's there's less kids nowadays to go hunting with their dads and there's less dads that hunt and we're we're losing that generational transfer and so we need to have some pathways for kids who uh, might really have an interest and enjoy it uh, to get out in the field and and that's really hard dylan like it's complicated to say the least to take kids pheasant hunting especially if they haven't had a lot of experience in the field just safety wise walking through the field with a gun And a bird gets up and it's going to do what it wants to do. Normally, they fly away from you. But, like game farm birds, if you take them to a game farm, those birds can go any direction. And so, if they cut between the group and you got people swinging on birds, like it's, um, there's a lot of factors that it's, it's why you don't see uh, like people, well, you know, we, we've done events through Pheasants Forever to take the take youth hunting and the, kind of like the first time thing and as well as women um, just to get mm-hmm. uh, people out in the field that are new. But it's difficult to, to transfer it. And there's definitely a lot of kids who are into the outdoors and uh, hunting that also shoot trap, which is awesome. Because when you talk about making yourself better in the field, um, yeah. that 800, 800 rounds per year is going to help a tonne. With making you better in the field uh, no doubt about it mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah that you kind of answered my question before i even had a chance to ask it. i was going to ask uh, how you thought trap shooting related to success in the field and, and there you there you answered it perfect
1: yeah I'll, I'll go back to that point about shouldering though and that's i do see that when you have your feet set and you can shoulder the gun and then call for the bird well all three of those things aren't going to happen when you're pheasant hunting. You're never going to have your feet set. You're usually going to be stepping over a log or cross-legged or, you know, your eyes are looking down to where your feet could be. Um, you won't know when the bird's going to flush normally. Uh, pointers give you a little better advantage when they hold and you go in and kick it out. That helps. But flushers, it's, you know, sometimes the dog gives you a heads up. Sometimes the bird just shows up. And then uh, the last part of that is, yeah, getting your gun mounted. Um and taking a good shot like it's what makes it challenging and really fun and again if it were easy why would anybody do it you know it's it's the challenge of taking a bird down that's just incredibly evasive and actually really smart for their tiny little brain they they're they're awesome at getting away and so that's that's part of what makes it really fun
0: heck yeah and, uh, believe it or not, I've only ever been to like, a like a trap course. It is that called, uh, I feel like there's a special name
1: for that. Isn't there? Oh, there's a sporting clays course, um, which yeah, would be, more, yeah, that's uh, what I'm thinking. Of. Yep. And so that is the, uh, the, the cool thing about sporting clays is they're going to have like overhead shots, which are more like duck shots. They're going to have passing shots, which are definitely more pheasant, um, Running rabbit. And they have uh, the rabbits.
0: Yeah, I love the rabbits. Actually, it's a love-hate well, thing with them.
1: <laughs> and I would encourage everybody that goes there, like if you really want to use it to train yourself to get better in the field, then don't mount your gun until after you call pull. So call pull for the bird, <laughs> then go to mount your gun. It's a different different game. Um, most people don't do that because it's a disadvantage, right? It's, and you're competing with people. But I'll tell you just mm-hmm. – making yourself better in the field. That's a, it's a big hurdle for a lot of people to get over.
0: Yeah. The, fir- the first time I went uh, was maybe a year ago, maybe two years and I went with my brother and, uh, we got to the first stand, you know, and I had my gun down like normal. And, uh, I said, pull and, you know, I, I pulled up, uh, you know, I pulled up like I'd pull up on a bird and, and shot. And I, and I miss is my first time, you know, actually really shooting at a clay pigeon. And, uh, <laughs> and my brother was giving me crap he's like why don't you just start with your with it shoulder up to your shoulder and and i was like well i to be honest with you i don't really care too much about how my numbers look today i'm more worried about getting a little practice in before the season kind of thing you know yep. and that was uh that was a good laugh we had between us and then uh yeah it was, it was a fun day
1: what else willie we
0: got uh processing and cooking oh wait we're not quite there yet (laughs) we got tactics and strategies and then and i had this underlined because it's super important i guess (laughs) but how they change throughout the year so uh what kind of tactics and strategies are you doing at the beginning of the year and then how are you changing uh your tactics and strategies to really get after the birds in late season
1: sure uh So uh, this is all, again, part of the challenge and what makes it a really uh, kind of a beautiful hunting season. So if we look at it from a season standpoint or seasons, actually, uh, early season. So this Saturday, which everybody's fired up for, uh, usually involves a lot of people in tennis shoes who get invited out because their family's got land and it's the opener. Uh, Just like fishing opener, right? Uh, Last year, I hunted out by Herman and it was crazy uh, there was four different groups in one section and I was a big piece but i would never normally hunt i'd never even hunt in the same section as anybody um, ever and uh the next day sunday there was half of those people and then after that it fades considerably and um, that's the way i like it i probably won't hunt this saturday and i would tell people you know don't base the year on the opening weekend uh, for a lot of reasons. So number one, birds need food, cover, and water. And if you don't have those three ingredients, you're probably wasting your time in a spot, okay? Um, If you've got those three ingredients, then you have to consider if they've got food standing like corn they're going to use it for cover and unless you can hunt the corn which i have in large groups you know it's super successful but it's not that fun you're walking rows and pushing birds to the end and it can be a total bonanza at the end but if you can't do that those birds are going to use that food for cover during the day and it makes it really difficult so then you have these windows that you have to try and get the birds in Uh, in minnesota you can't hunt until 9 a.m And for that reason, the birds are usually out of their evening roost where they slept. They've flown out for food already. And so you don't typically get them out of the roost in the morning. If somebody's looking to shoot a bird early, um, I would tell them to find food, cover, and water and hunt next to the food. um, But close to cover where they're going to roost in the evening uh, and hunt the last hour of the day. Uh, those birds will move closer to the to the um, cover that they're going to roost in, right on the edge of the fields usually, like walk the edge of a cornfield, and so they'll be in transition. You'll see them flying back to roost sometimes um, before shooting hours are over. But those are your higher percentage. Um, not that you can't shoot birds out of cover in the middle of the day. Uh, they do go to cover after they feed in the morning, but it's it's harder. So I really look forward to, as the crops get out, uh, that moves the birds to pretty much cover. Um, and so you got like the mid-November window, which is still before freeze up. Uh, but the crops are out and hunting percentages are, are really high, much better. It's probably your best time uh, as far as seeing the number of birds, getting good shots. Uh, but then there's these other really fun occurrences. So the first snow. Um, birds get pretty dumb when it comes to the first snow. They just, like you were saying, tracking in the snow, they they figured out after a while and they use the snow to their advantage. But if you can go on a day where there's a fresh first snow, it's an unbelievable, it can be unbelievable, okay? Once the snow hardens and they can hear you in it, which they can hear incredibly well, and they can uh, feel you in it, which they use their feet to feel movement in the ground, Uh, it gets really tough again. Okay. And then there's the fact that if if you get snow without a good freeze up, well, now you got birds that can run on thin ice, but you can't. Um, I've been in the swamp up to my chest more than once. I've had some close calls and I would encourage everybody to uh, use safety first, especially when you're hunting yourself or hunting with yourself. Uh, I fell in a sock center about two years ago. Um, I was by myself and it was, a, it was a bad situation. Um, my dad's fallen in pretty serious a couple times, um, where nobody else knew about it, you know. And you basically gotta you gotta use your gun like a um, cross brace and crawl yourself out of a hole. And then you get the dog falls in the hole with you. That freeze up window can be really tough and it's frustrating because there's good windows to hunt, but those birds use that as an advantage and they go out on that thin ice because they know a coyote will do the same thing and fall in or whatever predator uh, they go where you can't follow them. And until you get a good freeze up, it's it's very dangerous. So hunt in groups. Um, if you're hunting by yourself, then don't risk going out over frozen water uh, until you know it's solid. I've fallen in in the end of December. Because we've had good snowstorms that blew the cattails in three feet, and that three foot of snow is an insulator for the cattails, but not for the ice. So there's ten inches of ice out on the lake, or the swamp, or the slough. But you get going through those cattails to get to them, and I've fallen in there because there's it just keeps the ground heat keeps the um, ice from freezing. So mm-hmm. it's all yeah. you know uh, serious. Um now it's super fun hunting late season. It's super challenging. The birds are punchy, they group up, they can see you from a mile away. Uh like I said, they can hear you, but you just gotta change um your strategy. So uh tactics, Dylan. Like I try to hunt as quiet as I can. Uh I don't talk with people. I don't really allow that when we're in spots. Um, I don't, I don't use <laughs> locators from with my dogs. Uh, I don't whistle at them. I don't encourage them. I don't do anything. We hunt silently. And if people don't, if they think, oh, that doesn't sound like fun, like you should be able to go out and have a good conversation. Well, you can do that, but you're highly reducing your odds because the birds are always on, they're always wary. Um, I do use like a quiet beep to bring my dogs back, back on their collars. And then I have locating sounders that'll go off if they go on point. Uh, or if I lose them, you know, um, like they're on point somewhere out in a cattail slough. I don't like to do that because the bird's here too. But um, I hunt thick cover. Uh, I try to go where people don't go because I'm young enough yet to do it. I like hunting really big pieces. Um, I didn't hunt private land last year until December 14th. And I, I take pride in that and the fact that I can be successful on public land. But it's also a great gift that we have so much awesome cover and land to hunt. Uh, Minnesota is very, very wet. A lot of cattails, uh, a lot of sloughs. So that makes it, again, it's hard, it's tougher and cover is difficult to get through. Um, you know, you can try and use strategies as well with, with pinching birds, we've done that. You gotta be careful when you're walking towards each other but it, it can work really well with, if you're hunting with more than one person to come in from two different angles. So the birds don't get ahead or out on you because they'll run hundreds of yards in front of you without you knowing it, and you'll just create a wave of of wild game that you may never see because they don't want to. They not They won't fly if they don't have to. Uh, they'll run. They'd much just as soon stay on the ground as show them mm-hmm. themselves. So, so I think that's um, I don't know some of the strategies um some of the best hunting is after freeze up it's awesome i i hunt through january um i go down to iowa second week in january and um it's great i mean it can be brutal too (laughs) it's 40 mile an hour winds or you know wind chills or whatever but again that's all just part of the part of the part of the challenge i enjoy all of it i enjoy the whole season yeah
0: yeah, gotcha. You you covered that really good. Uh had a lot of good details in there. That uh, should be all for tactics and strategies. That's perfect. And uh next up, processing and cooking. So uh what are you making with these birds? You know, do you have any good recipes you want to share? And uh so on and so forth. Anything like that?
1: Yeah, so uh, I mean a pheasant breast is really a very lean chicken breast that will cook in about a third of the time. I'd say that's the simplest way. So if, if anybody's ever filleted a chicken breast off of a bird, uh, it's really, you find the hyoid bone, the center of, well, let's start with, uh, the simplest thing is to strip away the skin off of the breast of the bird. So just grab it right up by the nape of the neck and uh, you can tear it, pull it down away from the bird. That'll, uh, Expose the pheasant breasts and you just flay those right off of the center of the hyoid bone Um, Slice right down the middle of that. That'll give you a nice breast and a tenderloin as well Um, I always take the thigh meat now Um, So the thighs of the bird unless they're shot bird bones are hollow, right? So if it if you've broken a a leg bone It's really tough to get those bone fragments out of the meat, but the thigh meat itself um, You can usually dislocate the hip and then slice down the center of the hip bone uh, and then around the bone. So you basically kind of filet uh, or, or a skirt all the way around the bone. And that thigh meat piece is just fantastic. If, if you like dark meat, uh, more flavor and uh, I, I love them. And then you can also take the legs, the lower leg as well, but there's a lot of pin bones in those. Um, I haven't mastered how to cook those where it just falls off yet. Um, but for sure thigh meat I take. We do soup, uh, pheasant wild rice soup. That's a family favorite. We give that away as a, as a gift to people. Um, we will grill them straight up teriyaki. I like uh, garlic hoisin or teriyaki sauce. I will usually marinate. Uh, I'll take like four or five pheasant breasts, put them in a Ziploc bag with some teriyaki, and just mix that up good and then freeze it. And salt is the really the only um, flavoring that penetrates meat. Uh, Everything else is just topical. So all the stuff you hear, nothing actually goes into the meat except for salt. And so there's a lot of salt in teriyaki. Um, There's salt in hoisin, garlic, and and your general sows and whatever. And so those, when you freeze it, it will penetrate into that meat, um, and it will take on that flavoring. And then it's just really simple to throw it in water for 30 minutes, hot water, thaw it out, throw it on the grill for six to eight minutes at the most. Most people overcook pheasant breasts or pheasant in general because they think it's a chicken, and it's not. It's so lean that it'll cook super fast. Um, if people are looking for names or whatever, Hank Shaw, he's a Minnesota native. He's a James Beard award-winning chef, super cool guy, and he's got uh, books out on how to cook wild game. And one of his recent ones is Pheasant Quail Cottontail. He's got some awesome recipes in there. If you like curry, he's got a curry pheasant recipe that's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> we eat that regularly. <clears throat> we're not uh, we're not entirely wild game, but we're probably fifty percent of our diet is wild game. I would say fairly. We we buy beef right now from Meadowbrook Dairy, but um, you know, on a, any given any given week, we're we're cooking two or three wild game meals, I would say, uh, eating venison, summer sausage. I just had pheasant hot dogs made at Plattenberg's. Um, so they'll blend that with a little bit like 25% of pork and beef and, uh, pheasant bologna. and um, we have a lot of deer made that way too. So, uh, yeah, eat what you kill for sure. And, um, I'll tell you one other interesting thing I've gotten into and that's uh, seasoning or aging birds, Um, people think it's super weird, but, um, you can, you can hang a bird if you shoot a bird and you don't, um, you don't hit it too hard. You don't want to shoot a bird that you carried bullets through the, through the guts into the body. Um, but let's say you wing a bird or you shoot in the head or whatever, and it's pretty intact or really intact. Uh, you can keep it whole so you don't field dress it. You don't take the guts out and you hang it, um. By the neck is what I usually do. You can do by the feet, too. But you need to hang it in a temperature-controlled environment that's like 50 degrees, plus or minus 2 or 3 degrees. And what happens is this really cool uh, breakdown of the muscle tissue because of natural bacteria in the bird. And this isn't like it's rotting, uh, but you can season it for 3 to 5 days. Um, I've done up to 5 days, and the the muscle um, consistency changes. It goes from initially, you know, when you pick that bird up off the ground, if you've just shot it, it's super soft, fleshy. Uh, it'll go into a rigor mortis stage where it gets rigid and, you know, stiff as a board. And then when you hang the bird, it'll start to relax out of that. Um, and all of these crazy chemical things happen. Uh, but the bird, um, the, the bird takes on the, – the meat takes on a flavor, and I would call it a tang or a zinginess, I guess, is how I would describe it. But there's usually a lot more flavor that's there. Cool. Yeah, a fresh pheasant is basically flavorless. It's like chicken breast. I mean you can taste a little bit, but you're not – you're only going to get what you put on it for taste. But a pheasant that's seasoned for five days, um, it's just got character is how I would describe it. you got to be careful. Like I said, temperature is really important um you get it too hot and it's going to rot you get it too cold and it just won't do anything um it'll just and it actually rots at too cold too if you have it down in 40 degree range, it's crazy what what that 50 degree magic window is but i'll season birds just because it's something different to do and uh we're gonna have like truly just seasoned for five days and then uh, put seasonings on them and grill them um that's a different way to eat them so um beyond that
0: that was Uh, super cool
1: yeah there's i mean those are those are all ways that we consume the birds and um we try to like it's nice to give away the teriyaki pheasant because it's easy for people to make and usually it's a big hit um -hmm. and i've given away whole birds as well and i plucked birds and roasted them and done all that kind of stuff too but i guess day in day out we eat a lot of asian that will just uh make it some version of asian food and it's good
0: so yeah perfect uh thanks for sharing that uh you know i've always heard of that aging process and i've never really tried it but uh you might have just convinced me and sold me on it but that's super cool
1: look up hank Shaw. the guy's legit he's he's really open about sharing about how to do it and awesome recipes too um and when you get the money then you spend the 20 bucks on the cookbook and recipes out of there to support him because uh he's 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 big in uh pheasants forever uh, that world anyway and that's kind of how i got into him so
0: yeah yeah well i just gave him a follow on instagram so <laughs> nice so uh i'm sure with your time pheasant hunting you probably had made some pretty uh pretty good memories what are some of your most memorable experiences uh pheasant hunting
1: uh, well, I would say just, just looking at last year, I mean, I've hunted since I was, uh, hunted pheasants since I was 12. Uh, but really successfully, uh, it took a long time to progress. I don't know if I shot my first wild bird before I was 16 or 17. And then they were pretty few and far between. Um, and college, I didn't get out a ton. Uh, and then younger kids, that was harder too, um, but I really started picking up steam here once my kids got into it. And I mean, last year was an unbelievable year. I uh, was fortunate enough to shoot a lot of pheasants and the highlight of highlights of last year though, was to see other people who I was with shoot pheasants. Um, I had mentioned that I had three people that I hunted with last year that shot their first wild rooster. Uh, two of them were kids and, um, Grant Kurowski, who who's a um, buddy's son. He's a uh, eighth grader right now. He's on the trap team. And then uh, Ben Karsh, who's my godson, he shot his first wild rooster, too. And both were just really cool experiences. Um, dog work was awesome. Dogs um, worked these, well, in Grant's case, pinned a bird down and uh, got to watch it flush off of Grant's feet. And he swung and shot it out over a pick cornfield, knocked it down. It's just just, total picture perfect that was actually on on opening weekend on opening day um and uh ben it was the end of november super tough conditions really windy and cold our eyes are water and and um i jumped down into this heavy cover and i said anything comes out of here make sure it's a rooster you know and uh, you put it down and the dogs worked a bird up to the edge of the field and i didn't even see it flush i just heard him shoot so i'm clamoring out of this stuff and uh dog went and picked it up brought it back and so i took that bird took the tail actually both of them i took the tail feathers uh that cluster and then the shot the shell that the empty shell uh that they ejected and i took a photo collage from the day and i put that all on a piece of um cedar siding old cedar siding and that, those were christmas gifts and uh it's just really That's cool, cool to me you know whether or not they stay in it uh, i'll always invite them to hunt again and go hunting with them but um you know it's my hope that i can get more people into hunting uh, the other story i'd share from last year is the the guy that got me into hunting was my uncle kenny and uh, kenny's a vietnam vet and um he w- was in the war with uh, a farmer from down in iowa and when they came back they got connected uh, he went down to visit and there was pheasants everywhere down there and this is like 1974 i wasn't even born yet And they started hunting down there, going down and just kind of that was what brought them together. The fall, Kenny would go down and they'd spend time and super way to stay connected. And uh, he invited me down. Um, Before that, I just walked Benton County with him and through all these swamps that were just killer. Uh, I I walked before I could even carry a gun just to kind of experience it. Um, And he got me hooked on it. And that was a long time ago now, uh, 30 years or something like that and last winter yeah uh, oh sorry about that well he um he got covid last year and he was hospitalized for like five or six days and they didn't know if he was going to make it and uh he ended up getting released in middle of november and he was in rough shape like he couldn't even walk up his lower level stairs uh i I brought some uh kind of uh, I'll get well gift over. I brought him a box of shells and I, and I put a card in there that said, hope you still got a few rounds left in you and, uh, brought him some soup and whatever. And he just looked terrible, you know? And I'm like, well, I don't know if he'll ever hunt again, you know? And, uh, his lungs were bad and the whole deal, uh, end of December, it was a Friday. It was a really nice day. And I took a personal day, and I told my dad, I said, I'm going to go out west, western Minnesota, everything's froze up and uh, make a day of it. And I called my brother, too, who's my brother's got young kids, so he just has a hard time getting out right now. And he's like, yeah, I can go. And then I called Kenny and I said, hey, if you just want to ride along, you know, just jump in the truck and you can uh, road hunt a little bit or you can drive us spot to spot or whatever you feel like. He's like, yeah, no, I think I can go. And Kenny went out and he just, he did awesome. Like he was, he walked mostly flat land and just real thin stuff. But, you know, the, sometimes things happen out there that you know that there's a greater, well, I know that there's something greater at work. It's not, um, I know that God is in work at work and I know that the, the spirit of wonder and awe is, is the way that I connect with God the most. And on that particular day, things happened that, don't normally happen in nature um kenny (laughs) we were we were hunting this spot and we pushed it out like we should and kenny was kind of posting her up ahead and the dogs go on point behind him and he swings around and this huge rooster i mean just a giant old mature bird flushes and uh, kenny pulls up and puts it down perfect dog brings it back it's like a one inch spur bird um 28 29 inch tail feathers like giant bird. And I got a picture of the four of us in the sunset and Kenny holding that bird and the rest of us holding our birds. And like, that was just one of those, I will always remember that moment on earth. And, uh, you just knew that, um, you know, God was blessing us that day. He was giving, giving us another chance to, to experience his creation. And, you know, for Kenny, it was such a kind of a redemption moment and of course he downplayed it you know no big deal or whatever but for me it was it was a big deal for him to be able to get back to that quality of living because I mean that's what it's about man living fully when it comes to chasing wild game and and uh, uh, everything that you get to do with that which is connecting with buddies um, seeing creation being challenged by creation uh, being in in absolute wonder and awe by dogs and their abilities and animals uh, birds and their abilities uh, like that's what living fully is about and that's what i'm trying to share with other people and invite them to is not that i'm better or that i'm you know what they're doing isn't adequate but like there's something that i experience with this that is just uh, like nothing else you know it's i look forward to it all year um and it's it's certainly some of the high points of my recreational life, you know, and my uh, life outside of family and, and work.
0: Well, that's, that's a really cool story. I'm glad you shared that. And uh yeah, that is uh that is one heck of a story. <laughs> you know, I was just sitting there, I was sitting there smiling, you know, just when you're talking about that, cause you know, stars aligned and, and I'm a big believer in God too, as you know, and I, uh, I, I'm pretty, pretty big into my, into my faith. So, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of things in the outdoors relate to to God and, and the gifts he has to offer and everything he's doing for us. So uh, I I like that you included that and then, uh, made it a part of, you know, why you like it so much. You really wrapped that together nicely.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah. And I, I, so, I uh if you I spend think that I'll wrap it if you spend much time outdoors, it's hard to not make that connection, you know. And I don't get people that don't. It, it, it's hard to to see that as well. But I'm glad to hear you make the same connections. And I and I hope that uh, that's part of what we invite people to, you know, when we invite them into the outdoors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that is all I got for you today, Joe. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me today, and thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Dylan. I want to wish you good luck this season, and anybody else that's uh, that's going out in the field, uh, be safe as we talked about, and uh, don't don't be afraid to pattern that gun before you pull up for the first time on that on that ring neck.
0: <laughs> Will do. Thanks uh, <laughs> thanks for everything, man.
1: All right. Have a good evening.
0: Thanks you too. Bye. Well, folks, that is all I got with Joe Schulte this week. Hope you guys enjoyed. I am not 100% sure which uh, kind of category I'm gonna do next week. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll do a completely off-topic episode, and then we'll come back next week with that last uh, or uh, some more some more segments. But this is just kind of a baseline for me. You know, I'm not guaranteed gonna put all these uh, episodes in a row like. Bang, bang, bang. You know, it might be kind of drawn out a little bit with some episodes in between. Uh, I just want to make these as high quality as I can for you guys. I hate doing episodes by myself. I hated it. Like that whole fall episodes or fall opportunities episode, I dreaded that because I just felt like I was rambling. I felt I was repeating myself. I feel like I was tripping over my own words kind of thing. Uh, it's just a lot more fun to have a guest on. I have this new uh, recording software so I can actually, like, look at the person I'm recording with, and that makes it, like... it it pretty much feels like I'm talking with them in the same room and it's a ton of fun. Uh, So I love having guests on. I don't want to do episodes without guests. So uh, stay tuned for some more episodes. And if it takes me a little longer to get them out, don't worry. They'll be high quality when they do get out. But for now, that is all I got for you guys. Thank you for listening. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. God bless.